Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to welcome to the podcast two guests today. The first is Sarah C. Dunstan. Uh, Sarah is a lecturer in the International History of Modern Human Rights at the University of Glasgow. And the other is Katarina Rietzler. Katarina is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Sussex. And we've invited them on the podcast today to discuss their new edited volume, Women's International Thought Towards a New Canon, which they edited with Patricia Owens and Kimberly Hutchings. So uh, Katarina and Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks. So, so why don't we just start at the beginning, which is why did you feel that there needed to be a volume like this? What is the problem in the quote unquote canon of international relations thinking that this volume in particular is meant to address? Uh, well, thank you very much for that question. I mean, there's, um, there's a long story and there is a short story. Um, And the longer story is that this is part of a larger project, uh, which is funded by the Lieber Hume Trust in the UK. And the project is called Women and the History of International Thought. It's a multidisciplinary project. We've got historians on board and also our scholars. And um, the first sort of book length output of that project was another volume, which is called Women's International Thought, a new History, um, which is a classic edited volume with with essays by by different scholars, um, mostly focusing on individual women thinkers that have either been erased from history, erased from the history of IR as a field, as an academic discipline, or that have been recognized in some shape or form, but not really as international thinkers. Um, So that was an edited volume And the anthology, which is the book that we are discussing today, is um, so Women's International Thought Towards a New Canon, is kind of a companion volume because it contains um, over 100 uh, written extracts by over 90 international women thinkers, uh, and a lot of them, or most of them actually featured in the first edited volume. So in a way, it's a companion piece. It's an attempt to redress the erasure of women from the history of international thought, from the academic history of international relations as as a discipline. Um, And that's, in a way, the genesis of this particular book-length project. But... um, as you've already said, we have um, collaborators on the project, Patricia Owens um, and Kimberly Hutchings, and uh, they are both IR scholars, whereas um, Sarah and I are historians. Um, but I, I think uh, Sarah can can say a little bit more about that and, and also about her other outputs uh, from this project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the, the motivating factors to add to, to Katarina was the fact that many uh, women who taught uh, or advised or consulted in international relations throughout the 20th century are women who 
didn't necessarily have the opportunity to publish in a way that we would recognize as a, as a kind of traditional uh, creation of the canon. So I'm thinking here of women who are excluded, uh, like African-American thinkers, who are no less engaged uh, and no less prolific in the way that they're writing and thinking about international relations, but whose work doesn't appear in sort of traditional journals or traditional kind of book forms. So one of the things that the anthology does that is very exciting is that it recovers some of their lectures, for example, from archives and makes it accessible to a new generation, a new audience uh, in a way that, you know, is useful for teaching, but is also useful for helping us, you know, include lots of different voices and perspectives in how we think about international relations. Can we talk a bit about that erasure and what precisely you mean by that? And what was the mechanism of that erasure? So what was, if, if you're a, a, a someone who's a historical woman, and you might also just want to identify what you mean by that term. I thought that was a, a nice um, a, a nice way you described it in the introduction. If you were someone who was a historical woman in the first half of the 20th century, what are the problems facing you, um, first of all, to even become an IR thinker? And then let's say you become uh, you know, a professor at Oxford in international relations. How come you're not... Um, in the canon. What, what, what was that specific process of erasure that you were trying to overcome? I might start and then pass the, the canon on to uh, Katerina. The first thing I'd say is that it works differently for different women, right? So there are different kinds of positionality um, with different kinds of erasure. So there are some women who are coming through university avenues who are indeed even uh, lecturers and, and professors at university um, who are publishing in that kind of traditional sense. Many of them had recognition at the time, but have subsequently been written out of the canon. Um, alternatively, you can be thinking about, uh, I mentioned African-American thinkers, so I'm going to mention someone uh, who's relevant from my own research, a woman called Jessie Fawcett. Now, Jessie was actually uh, a teacher of Romance languages, um, but she was involved in the Pan-African movements in the early 1920s in association with the eminent African-American scholar-activist W.E.B. Du Bois. Now, she wrote and published on these congresses and on Black internationalism, Black solidarity in this moment, um, and her publications were were published in The Crisis, which is the organ journal of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People. This is not traditionally a, a source of international relations thinking, although lots of interesting and pertinent work was published there. But it's at this moment where African-American scholars um, form a kind of parallel academy, if you like. They're not integrated into sort of the white uh, canon at this moment. And someone like Jessie Fawcett in particular, as a woman who is a teacher, um, doesn't have the same kind of voice or access. So she's, she's sort of, there's a double erasure going on here as both a woman of colour. Uh, so she's as a woman and a person of colour. There's a double erasure in terms of her audience, the kind of platform that she has access to. And those kind of things are really important to take into account because her access to the academy, um, to the sort of circles of discussions is very different to, say, for example, um, a white woman who's been able to go to one of the women's colleges and, um, you know, get a kind of degree uh, and a kind of training in the sociology of the field in a different way, which is um, Katerina's expertise. So I'll pass on to her. I think that's that's really helpful. I mean, there are obviously um, different processes of of erasure going on, but also different different barriers that that um, prevent um, 
certain forms of intellectual production and certain genres and forms that we might recognize as international thinking in a more narrow way. And but they also um, they are also uh, forms of erasure that happen subsequently. Um, and perhaps to illustrate this with an example, as Sarah has just done, so so they are also. Um, white women, white American women in particular, who, who are in some ways very privileged, um, they don't face economic hardship, they have access to higher education, they go to these prestigious women's colleges and, and often manage to attain um, doctoral doctorates or higher degrees. And we have to also recognize that in that particular time period, and this is maybe something else I, I should say in the context of this um, anthology, because in, in a way it's very, very narrow. Um, it focuses on a specific time, um, so late 19th century to mid 20th century, um, which which obviously <laughs> erases all sorts of other forms of international thought, and it focuses on specific locations. So, roughly speaking, the the American and, and the British Empire. So, in in some in some way, there are many many other um, historical thinkers that we could have included, but we didn't because we had to constrain our project. In some ways, but in this particular context, a tiny minority of of people make it to higher education, and then an even tinier minority attain sort of um, those those degrees. So, a lot of the women that are in the volume did have access to higher education, and the example I'm thinking of here is Fanny von Andrews. So, this is somebody who starts out um, as a teacher, as a kind of educational reformer who has access to um, policymakers, who, who consults with the US government. She has an international reputation and, and to her education is kind of the key to reforming international relations. So she's in some ways, um, she has a, a sort of elite background. Um, she, um, a, she, she gets a doctorate in international law um, uh, from Harvard, and uh, in, in some ways, she, she doesn't face certain barriers. Um, so she, she starts out as a teacher and then, and then she sort of trains in international law. And at the time, that was a large part of the wider field of academic IR of international relations. And the results for doctorate, which, which she gains in the 1920s, they are of their time. But they are um, certainly um, no worse than other doctorates by comparable ma male figures of, of that time, and uh, and and none. And she's even congratulated by uh, figures that later become really influential in the history of IR of international thought, such as uh, Quincy Wright um, or um, Raymond Leslie Buell. Um, she's congratulated on her. Uh, findings on her achievements, but she then doesn't manage to translate that into a recognized um, a sort of in, into an academic position. And, and she can't get her PhD published, for example, even though it, it's fairly conventional. Um, you, you can still look at it in her personal papers. It's, as I said, it, it would be publishable, but she just cannot find a publisher. And she ends up writing something that is more of a travel memoir about her visit to, um, to Palestine, to the Holy Land, as she calls it. So she ends up writing in, an, in a genre that is, that is conventionally feminine, uh, that is feminized, and, um, 
And that's how she is erased, even though the results of her research are actually appreciated by figures in the field. Um, what also happens is then later on in, um, in the interwar period, she tries to get funding from important organizations uh, such as the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, you know, presents uh, funding proposals, grant proposals, which, which are then rebuffed. So um, there are certainly institutional barriers or uh, uh, gender barriers to somebody like, like Andrews. And while you know, there, there is a question of whether her, her thought, her ideas sort of deserve recovering, um, I mean, that's always a thorny question in this kind of recovery project. Anyway, um, there are certainly identifiable processes of, of subsequent erasure of non-recognition that that we that we can uh, that we know about simply um, from looking at the archival evidence. But that said, she's obviously a hugely uh, privileged figure at the same time because we have she has personal papers that are in the Schlesinger, uh, Schlesinger, sorry, Schlesinger Library at at Harvard. So so that um, alone makes her quite a privileged figure. Now that question of of women, and because that is really our category, it's not so much gender, even though gender is obviously important in this kind of project. Right. That's very interesting, right? And maybe you could just for people who might not know, we're 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 doing a long series on queer history, mostly gay history, but not totally uh, gay history with Sam Sam uh, Unica. And so we've talked a little about queer theory on this podcast, but maybe you could talk about the category of w- women. Because in some sense, that's unique in the modern in the modern uh, academy, where, where it's really we're focused on gender history per se. So, could you maybe talk about women's history and how you see this project fitting into the more, I don't know, gender turn one might call it? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting in a way that you that you say that um, women's history has been sort of superseded by by gender history. I think there might be quite a few women's historians who might not agree with with you here in this uh, strictly strictly speaking. And and in a way, yes, it is a um, it is an old fashioned project. It is a recovery project. It is. Um, and, and recovery as a historical methodology obviously dates back to sort of the, the second the second wave and, and those very early forms of um, women's history in, in, in the 20th century. Um, I think, um, and, and there are lots and lots of points you can make about how to do a good recovery history. I think the recovery of women thinkers remains important because what we've ended up with is a really distorted history, which is just not accurate because we have actors that are not there in the historical record. And these actors are identifiable as, as women. And while we may argue about this category today, um, in the sort of um, time period we're looking at, um, the conversations were of course different. And we have figures in the volume and, and here I sort of might suggest a connecting point to um, histories of LGBTQ identities or, or queer history. Um, we have figures such as Pauli Murray who has been the subject of a tremendous amount of research and, and whose 
obviously a very well-known civil rights activist, but who we also recover in this volume as a as an international thinker. And, and Polly Murray, um, there's, I mean, there's a famous biography of her that was published that was published recently was was obviously gender nonconforming. Her own biographer has said that perhaps today, even though such speculations can can be difficult, perhaps today she she would not identify as a woman. She would identify as a trans man. And even to say she is is something that some historians uh, have sort of put question marks over. That I think the um, I can't remember the. The name, but a recent article on Murray uses um, S slash H E, so she he. Um, I mean, there, there there is there is a question mark of the self identification of of some some of these figures, or over the self identification of some of these figures, how they how they might describe themselves today, and and nonetheless, at the time, they they would have been without a doubt. Be read as 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 women, and and indeed, um, in the case of Polly Murray, who has um, who spent a lot of her time really um, fighting against sex discrimination in American society and, and trying to reform the law to 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 um, to redress sex discrimination. Um, I, I think we we have a very complex figure who, who deals with issues around sex and gender in, in and obviously also her own. Um, sexuality, her own sexual orientation, in 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 really complex ways, and um, so I, I think you know there's there's some historical sensitivity that that we need to apply here. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Sarah, do you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would just agree with Katerina in that what we're attempting to do here is not sort of establish a kind of ontological or biological designation of of what it means to be a woman. Instead, it's about sort of self-identification or perception in a historical context. Um, I think one of the things that was really important to us as well was to be very clear about the positionality of each of the of the figures who've contributed to the volume. And that's partly the work that um, we do with the essays that introduce each thematic section is being really clear about how, you know, questions around gender, class, religion, um, ethnicity, na- uh, national belonging um, intersected to create um, the space in which these women were operating, right, and how important that is in, in shaping their thought, in shaping their opportunities, but also in shaping the way that we now perceive them and the way that they were perceived at the time. And so that I think that's really crucial to think about. Here's a um, just a quick question that emerges from that, because I think that it's it's really interesting how you do focus on intersectional identities throughout the entire uh, volume. But in some sense, um, and this is this is not uh, not a criticism, just I think a fact. It's it's you center the identity of 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 being a, a woman, and could you maybe talk about why that centering and and what that adds to IR? And then I have a very specific question about like IR as a discipline in the fifties. But as long as we're on this sort of category of of, of woman, and I think just to underline to listeners what what Katarina and Sarah were just saying was effectively their definition of what they mean by historical woman um self-identified and understood at the time right is that correct well not, not necessarily i mean it, it depends I, I i i think we can't really project our you know we currently especially in the anglophone world that we are living through a sort of gender revolution of course and you know we 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 see um, a really um, 
you know, a lot of contentious debates, especially in the United States. And, and then again, also in Britain. And I think the context is, is different and in different, in different locations. Um, and, you know, we, we cannot assume necessarily that all of these figures would have, we can't necessarily assume that they would have understood our concept today of self-identification. That, that I think that assumption is is perhaps uh, going a little bit too far. And and of course, um, you know, the the category of of woman is relevant when it comes to, for example, barriers to certain professions or barriers to higher education, because these these were sex based um, in this particular period in time. And, and I think, as I've already said, questions around sex, gender identity, um, and various complexities around that are not necessarily something that that those historical actors would have perhaps been aware of or seen in the same ways that as, as, as some of us might, might do today. Um, but I think the key here is that the people in the anthology were recognizable as women and their lives were structured because of that. And of course, there were other very, very important um, characteristics that, that structure those lives. And, and, you, and that's in some ways something that we also wanted to show. There's a real diversity of life experience, of lived experience, of um, economic status, of access to education, of, and, and there's a vicious uh, racial discrimination that some of these figures experience and extreme personal hardships. So, so it's very difficult to generalize. And I think um, it's very difficult to sort of essentialize also the content of this international thought. We have a vast, vast diversity of interests, of concerns. I mean, we wouldn't even want to assume that that all of these figures identified in, in some shape or form as, as feminists. I mean, they certainly, they certainly didn't, or that their main concern was with issues around, uh, around men, women, gender, um, not at all. Some of them certainly uh, took that seriously. Some of them sort of contemplated their own identity or, or um, felt that that was relevant for their inter- intellectual production. Some of them rejected that. Um, so uh, I think we want to be careful here um, also when it comes to essentializing a certain feminine identity because I, I, I'm not sure that that would fit. But in as I've already said, in a way it's um, a self-consciously old-fashioned recovery project. And the reason why we embarked on it was because there was such a, a wealth, at least that was my motivation, there was such a wealth of empirical evidence of um, historical actors who were interesting in their own right, who had interesting things to say, contributions to make, um, who were sort of defying conventions. Think, for example, of Morris Tate, who is the subject of a really important forthcoming biography by Barbara Savage, um, who is an African-American thinker, um, a professor at Howard University, and, and who in some ways, I mean, there are some sort of conservative slash realist strands perhaps in, in her thinking, even though she was also avowedly anti-racist. But you know, we what mattered to us was to show the complexity of these thinkers and to foreground the thought and beyond uh, sort of debates that we might be having in the here and now.
No, that makes total sense. And I like old fashioned recovery projects. I think they're, they're really important. Um, but I do want to get to the substance of the thought in, in two seconds, but I just think it, it's really important for listeners to know. Could you talk a little bit about how, what is IR? You know, when does that become a thing? Um, and how is that the quote unquote canon of IR, of IR formed? Because Sarah and Katarina, you were talking about almost like a lived erasure, you know, like you couldn't get your PhD published. So you, you don't even have a chance to enter the canon, but some people, you know, did, you know, become professors of international relations again. Um, and what is IR? How is that canon formed and, and how and why were women excluded from it? Oh, those are, are big questions. Uh, I, uh, Sarah, Sarah, would you would you like to answer it, or, or would you like me to to sort of make a start? I mean, I'm happy to take a first stab and then pass on. Go to for you. it. Go for it, please. I mean, I, I I'm going to start with a sort of small comment, which is to say, you know, in relatively recent years, there's been a turn in the discipline of IR to recover the history. So a historical turn, if you like. It's it's been mirrored in in international law, I think, as well, with a turn to the past, a turn to a kind of reflection on the the way that the history of the discipline is understood. Um, I think IR can be understood perhaps as a 20th century phenomenon with its origins um, in the early 20th century perhaps coming out of World War One, certainly in terms of uh, its life as a, an academic discipline within universities. It's at this point that you start to see international relations uh, becoming the subject of, of lecturer posts, etc., at least in the Anglosphere. Um, and I think one of the things that motivated us for, towards a recovery project in connection with this turn to the histories of IR is that much of the scholarship that had appeared before uh, this project began uh, was focused around so-called fathers of international relations. Um, it was looking at primarily male figures. Uh, Patricia Owens uh, did some interesting work here, sort of breaking down like the percentage, if you like, of, of male versus women thinkers that were considered to be canonical in IR. And, you know, in this regard, there are very, very few women. Um, there were the occasional uh, sort of feminist thinkers that people turned to, like, um, and then one or two sort of women that were considered to be ex exceptional. So people like Hannah Arendt, uh, perhaps Susan Sontag. But for the most part, there, there was a almost exclusively male genealogy that had been traced. Um, and I think, you know, as Katerina has already said, you know, this, this went against, you know, the reality of the wealth of, of women uh, who are teaching IR from the beginning, you know, um, who are training uh, students in this subject, um, but also in terms of, of people who are publishing and, and engaging with it. So I'll just pass over now to to Katerina to, to add to that. Um, yes, maybe maybe to just add to that. Um, I think one distinction that we're making in the wider project, but also in this anthology, is a distinction between the academic discipline of AR and of the field. And the field in some ways, the field is very, very useful to us because um, it, it is much wider than the academic discipline of IR, which becomes progressively um, narrower as we're moving into the post-1945 period. Um, and then there's obviously also the category of international thought, um, which which we define as, um, I think, deep, deep reflections on relations between 
um, states, um, empires, and and peoples. So so interestingly, the the nation has kind of fallen out of that. But there is a a real um, a, a, a really uh, strong concern across the different extracts in this anthology with the realities of of empire, um, of white supremacy, of of racial hierarchy. Um, and of um, imperialism and colonialism. So that is included in our definition of international thought, and it is indeed a key concern. But how this um, relates to the much more narrower discipline of IR is um, is also relevant. And, and we do want to contribute to disciplinary history, but I think if we had kept this rather narrow frame of we're doing disciplinary IR here, we're doing the history of the discipline, that then we couldn't have done this this project because um, that would have simply been too uh, too narrow and too many actors would have been excluded. That said, there are important um, figures of the discipline um, in the anthology. So Agnes Hedler-Morley, for example, who was the Montague Burton Professor of International Relations at the University of Oxford, <laughs> so a key figure in the British in the British discipline of international relations, and who um, in her lifetime was was sort of ridiculed, not not taken very seriously, and and that is because of the um, shape of her intellectual production. She she didn't publish very much. Um, she she was seen as a sort of college woman, a, a big disappointment, um, who didn't contribute very much. But um, so. So those figures also need recovering, those figures who are already in the discipline, but um, kind of just written off. And in Hedlund Morley case, I mean, there's a there's a very interesting history that also involves political activism, though political activism on the right or on the sort of center right, and just different forms of intellectual production in, in the shape of teaching. So a lot of these figures didn't necessarily publish very much, though some of them certainly did. Morris Tate, again, is, is an example of a prolific scholar. But uh, somebody like Hedler Molly was, was more concerned with, with pedagogy, with, with teaching. And indeed, uh, pedagogy um, and education is an important category for us that helped us capture some of these contributions that otherwise would have been missing, also from the more narrow disciplinary history of IR. And I thought that was really an, a, a, a crucial contribution of the volume, which was to looking to diverse sources to get at these texts. And it's it's actually kind of something that I find interesting as someone who's on the left today, you know, foreign affairs unlikely to publish me, Jacobin, you know, more likely to publish me. And so it's it's um, thinking about where to look for these uh, these forms of thought is really interesting. Um, so uh, I, I have a question about the Jews. Uh, so uh, I, I am Jewish. I study the history of IR. And I find something really interesting that a move you, you make in the introduction, which was you sort of bracket Ashkenazi Jewish women as being of a, of a different category. I think particularly in relation to Zontag and Arendt. And of course, as you well know, but for listeners who might not, a lot of the founding quote unquote fathers of IR were, were Jews, uh, and they were Jews who were exiles. So they, they, they were white, you know, they were phenotypically white. They moved through the world oftentimes as white men, but they, they weren't the wasp aristocracy. I, I believe, um, if I'm getting this correctly, for example, Yale doesn't tenure its first Jewish professor until 1946. So you have this very important 
um, interesting moment in the 1940s and 1950s when IR becomes like that narrow academic discipline that Katerina is talking about from, I would argue, people at the time, post-Holocaust emigres, Jews who were marginalized people, nevertheless engaging in their own process of marginalization by not including women historical women in the canon. Um, and I was just wondering if you could, if you had any, any thoughts about that. And the reason that, 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 that this immersed me was because of the Ashkenazi Jewish women comment in the introduction. And so it made me think about this process. So I'd love to hear your thoughts and then, and then we could, we could move on to the, to the content of the thought. I think it's, it's really, really important to, to recognize the, the reality of, of antisemitism in, in particular, not, not just in the United States, but, but also in Britain, and to also again, this is this is a case of um, you know, be, being very careful and, and really acknowledging uh, historical change change over time. I think if we we can put it like that, um, and while Ashkenazi Jewish figures uh, would, such as um, such as Arendt would would be seen as sort of white today and, and again these categories of whiteness are sometimes also contested uh, there's no doubt that those women of, of jewish heritage um, that are in the volume often often suffered um many many forms of discrimination encountered anti-semitism etc another example here um is lucy zimmern um who is commonly known as the wife of alfred zimmern the famous liberal internationalist and an ir theorist um, who also had a quite a complicated relationship with Zionism. So uh, Lucy Simon also um, uh, had a had a Jewish background and and obviously grew up in 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 France at a time of uh, rising anti-Semitism. Um, so so this is something that we have to acknowledge when talking about these these particular figures. And you're completely right. Uh, it's particularly Jewish emigres who shaped the discipline in that um, 1940s, 1950s moment. Sarah, do you have anything to add or should we move on? I mean, I would, I would just add to that, that I think, again, this volume and the, the research we did for this volume really underlines uh, the extent to which these processes of racialization and of gendering um, are so historically contingent. Right. They operate in different ways at different moments um, and for different people. And I think that that is really underlined by the volume and the experiences of the different people within it. And it's you know something that was a real take home for, for me. So why don't we get into the content of the of the book? And now it is it is such a large volume. I encourage everyone who's interested in the subject to just go out and get it because there, I think there are ninety thinkers or uh, over ninety excerpts. Is that correct? So it's an, it's really an incredible process of 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 recovery. And uh, and then, I mean honestly, just <laughs> congrats on it coming out and everything. Like uh, it's amazing to see something like this come out after years and years. So there, there's a lot of different subjects that are of course covered. And and so I just wanted to give um, you both the opportunity to highlight particular thinkers or, or particular subjects or topics that are illuminated in new ways by focusing on, on women who were excluded from the canon um, and women who are marginalized and erased from the discipline. Because it's there's such a wide swath of talk. I mean, there's 13 themes, you know, that, 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 that cover uh, um, in, in the book. So there's a lot there, but I just wanted to, wh whomever you think that people should know about should leave this conversation knowing about or, or, or topics that are newly illuminated by this work. 
I mean, that's a million dollar question. I think all of the, <laughs> all of the women, um, deserve to be, you know, really taken seriously and, and read. Um, I mean, for me, I, the, the section on, I think anti-colonialism, uh, is really important, is really important to me. Um, so in that section, we have you know, a range of women who are coming from very different contexts. So we have people like Jane Nadal, um, who is Martinican, is thinking and writing in the context of French empire. So she is very much situated at the, you know, in the metropole, she's in Paris. Um, she's writing from a perspective in which um, as an Antillian woman um, of a relatively middle-class background, she has had the opportunities that perhaps other women of color throughout the French empire wouldn't have. So she's had access to a university education. She has a relatively comfortable uh, existence um, and, and, and certainly a very cerebral one. Nevertheless, she has no opportunity for um, a kind of political, juridico-political citizenship. And this is uh, primarily because of her gender so women uh, french women at this time can't uh, they can't vote they don't have the same kind of political uh, rights as their male counterparts do um and antillian men at this time do have um certain limited sort of legal rights relative uh, to women although again that's still subject that it's not the same as being a white male citizen and you know so she, she the extract we have from her in anti-colonialism is really talking about the dynamics of what this means and how you think about sort of the interactions between nations, but really more pertinently at this time, the interactions between empires. And this is one of the things that I think is really interesting about the history of international relations is that, you know, up until, and certainly I think after, but at, in the nascent stages, up until the Second World War and decade or so that follows, a lot of there's a large section of international relations that is really about colonial administration and how to effectively uh, administer colonial populations, how to manage relationships between empires in sort of places like, say, for example, Africa, where you've got mandated territories belonging to different empires that are rubbing up against each other. And that's a central history. So for me to have a, a, a woman like Jane Nadal reflecting upon this from her position, I think really adds a new dimension to the field of international relations because it's not sort of coming from the position of how do we manage them, but from the position of how this affects not only um, sort of her day-to-day -day life, which is sort of interesting to me as a historian, but from an international relations perspective, how that makes her then theorize about um, her relationship with the rest of the African diaspora, right, and how organizing around sort of anti-colonial and anti-racist uh, themes at the level of state interaction can work. And just to underline, that's a topic that isn't covered in the mainstream IR canon effectively. So what you're doing by this process of recovery, it's not just adding another person, you're adding an entire new way of viewing international thought and international relations thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's really rich. I think that's really rich fodder for discussion in a, in a contemporary context too, right? When we think about the, the structural legacies of empire and how they still shape, for example, international law. Um, and so to return to this moment, I think you can get some really productive and, and rich thinking out of it to tackle problems that might be considered to be more contemporary much to, to choose from. I mean, and maybe just for the benefit of your listeners to 
run through all those different um, sections we have. One of them is obviously on questions on field and discipline, what we've already talked about. We have one on geopolitics and war, on imperialism, anti-colonialism, international law and international organization, diplomacy and foreign policy, world peace, world economy, public opinion and education, population, nation and immigration. So if, if you will, we have a sort of biopolitics section as well, and we have a section on technology progress and environment, and then one on religion and ethics. So it really does cover a huge um, swathe of themes and topic, as we've already said. Um, if I had to choose, um, I think I, I find this incredibly difficult because, but it, just in terms of the, the kind of quality of, of the writing and, and of the thought, um, I, I do think that um, the short extract we have of uh, Judith Schlar um, on decisionism in the diplomacy and foreign policy section, I, I think that's, that's a wonderful that's a wonderful piece to read. And, and perhaps, you know, it's some, some may already include it in their teaching, some IR scholars, but it's a, a really pithy and just beautifully written takedown on a certain style of foreign policy analysis that has lost, it was published in 1964, it has, has lost nothing of its, of its sharpness. So here we have, um, Schlar criticizing, um, Realism as, as a sort of temperament, as um, and in particular uh, decisionism, which which the which uh, she thinks is is a kind of over overly um, frantic obsession with individual decision making, and um, and it's a way of introducing technical rationality into um, analysis of foreign policy that that actually doesn't really lead anywhere so so in a in a way she suggests that um this sort of constant mode of debunking um this idea that all it takes for you know to make better foreign policy is to have as she calls it men with orderly minds this sort of cold-blooded um de-ideologized uh, decision-making process um in in her telling that that just leads to a level of abstraction that uh, that becomes entirely um, useless, and, and we end um, we end up back at um, foreign policy analysis that it is much more alike to old-fashioned narrative history, which is something that um, the debunkers of um, liberal internationalist IR or shall we say idealist IR denigrated, but then they end up there themselves. I can't really do justice to to this beautiful um, concise argument, but. Um, so that is an example for me um, in the anthology where we where we um, recover a really sort of well argued classical um, written piece that that I think everybody um, should still read today. But there are so many other um, surprising moments as well in the anthology. Um, another example that we might um, sort of bring up here is a review of E. H. Carr by Helene Stöcker, who is uh, known as a pacifist, a German pacifist. Um, some would say a sort of more sort of woolly-headed pacifist. Um, and surprisingly, she writes this incredibly appreciative review of the 20 years crisis, so E.H. Carr's magnum opus. Um, and uh, she even suggests that uh, the League of Nations, which is even to her a, a pacifist, a, a failing 
institution, the League of Nations would have benefited from reading E.H. Carr's book, in particular, the chapter on peaceful change. So peaceful change is being recovered as a contribution to IR theorizing by IR scholars. Um, so this, this idea of changing um, the international order without resorting to war um, is, is an important um, way of theorizing, in particular, interwar international relations. But um, so far, uh, Helene Stöcker is not, not really part of that recovery. So I think by um, taking thinkers out of the context in which they are usually pigeonholed um, and um, bringing them into new conversations, um, we, are, we are also um, shedding a sort of new, new light on, on different topics. Uh, the section that um, is, is my favorite is quite obviously the one on um, education and public opinion, um, recovering that particular category uh, for debates on contemporary international politics. So to what extent should the public have a say in the making of foreign policy? Can you educate um, ordinary people to make better decisions? I think these are questions that are still with us today. And it's an important section in an anthology of, on women's international thought because a lot of the thinkers that we have recovered have shared a deep commitment to education or they were educators themselves. Some of their, them are more skeptical. And again, here, Morris Tate is an interesting example. Morris Tate, as, a, um, as I think also her biographer would would suggest was a small r realist um, and was quite skeptical when it came to the educability of the public. And um, she uh, was mentored by um, canonical liberal internationalists uh, such as Alfred Zimmern and, and engaged with that whole interwar discourse on um, public opinion as a kind of discipliner of uh, wayward statesmen and a moral force, uh, a sort of... Um, pulpits, um, she engages with that, but she's very, very skeptical. And that skepticism, I think, is also worth recovering because it also puts pay to some of the stereotypes we have about interwar thinking in particular on international politics. Often perhaps a bit short-sighted in its assumptions about the level of criticality that thinkers, especially if they were women or African-American, brought to um, certain intellectual and also political projects. So I think for me, um, the favorite moments in the anthology are those unexpected contributions when we have uh, thinkers that we might not necessarily expect um, sort of uh, express skepticism or at least um, make arguments that that uh, we wouldn't necessarily expect of them. And uh, I think also in, in that context, it's um, it was important um, to include figures that that are well known in, in histories of education, for example, um, African-American club women, such as Nanny Helen Burroughs, and to show that um, these figures also thought very deeply about international politics. So in Burroughs' um, case, um, she wrote about um, the new immigration to the United States and the ways in which this complicated um, labor relations and the ways in which this um, complicated, in particular, access to the labor market for 
African-Americans. So, so this was a way of um, reflecting on international migration, the global color line in the context of, of education, in the context of projects for racial uplift, in the context of this, this, um, this wider, um, uh, I think, intellectual project of, of several club women who wrote at that time in the early 20th century. Thank you. And just for listeners, these are just selections. You know, it, it's really impossible to do justice to a volume of, of this breadth and depth in an interview. So I just wanted to highlight that. And, and particularly, I'm a big fan of Judith Sklar. I mean, I think she's one of the, the, the most trenchant critics of liberalism as a, as a, as a philosophy um, that um, has, has emerged in the last 100 years. And there's been something of a sklar in the last five or so years. So I, I encourage people to read her and to check out the volume um, as a whole. And, and there's just so much work remaining to be done on this. I, I um, early in graduate school, I planned to work on Roberta Wallstetter and, and, you know, how she, her gendered identity at the Rand Corporation in the 50s was both a limit to, but also helped facilitate her particular role there. It's very, uh, very interesting. Um, Derek, I know you have basically a final question that we could wrap up on. So you want to ask that? Sure. I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, in doing a, a, a compilation like this, which in a meta sense is kind of a commentary on the development of the field and the voices that have been excluded or erased from its development, uh, did it lead you to make any kind of observations about the state of the field today? Has it improved in terms of, you know, incorporating more diverse voices? How, how much has it improved? Um, are we going to be coming back in, in 50 years and doing another volume like this because it hasn't really improved that much and there's going to be uh, another batch of voices that need to be kind of recovered from the, the record? What, um, you know, did it, did it cause you to think, uh, you know, have any, any kind of, uh, sense of, of where things stand now? Um, in some ways, that's a difficult question for us to answer because we're both, um, we both trained as historians, even though, we work um, in a cross-disciplinary fashion. We we weren't taught the IR canon. Um, we are, and we both work in in history departments. Um, that said, obviously, we we the the idea of a canon is is present in any discipline. So so to engage with that, um, it benefits you, even if it's not your own discipline. And um, whether the canon has improved and whether the field and discipline have improved. I, I kind of feel like it would be fraudulent um, of me to, to answer that. Um, I, I think, um, I mean, I think I might suggest that things are not the same as they were 20 years ago. Um, I, I think that the questions of representation, of, um, of reform, I, I remain urgent and, and they remain projects that scholars are committed to in, in various discipline. So, um, but what might happen in another 20 years, I, I find that really, really difficult to answer. So I'm sorry, that's a bit of a non-answer to your question, but I find that, I find it hard to say. Um, I would say though, that re recovery is, is only a starting point. There's much more to recover. As I've already said, there are significant limitations to our recovery project. Um, there, there were obviously um, many more people who thought about international politics in, in other locations. Um, 
we may not even have exhausted uh, the locations that we we have looked at. Um, it's it's a beginning of a conversation. We hope and and what that conversation will look like in, in ten years' time, I I can't really say, but I hope it will still be there. I mean, I would add to that. I think, and again, I would re- reiterate that I'm a historian rather than an IR scholar. Um, but from this vantage point. I mean, I think there's interesting work being done. You know, someone like Robbie Shilliam uh, is integrating different perspectives um, from scholars of color. I think what's really fascinating, and who knows whether this is something that's that's here to stay, but the use of different kinds of uh, of writing, of theorizing. So, you know, in the volume, we include um, some poetry, for example, from Una Martin, um, where she's reflecting on the Italian invasion of of Ethiopia in the mid-1930s and sort of the ramifications of that. And I think what's interesting is increasingly certain scholars in IR are more comfortable using these different kind of genres uh, to think through, um, you know, their particular areas of interest within international relations. And I think that that's something that an anthology like this can help with because it, it sort of provides an opening into, you know, thinking about this more. I think it would be really interesting because again, one of the take-homes, as, as Katerina has already elegantly put it, is that you know just because we might have uh, identified these women as historical women who've been erased, they have a whole spectrum of political uh, you know kind of positions that they're coming from, and a whole whole different kinds of objectives in the kind of uh, sort of ideas that they're engaging with, and so you know there isn't a woman's IR that's very clear, um, and I think that. You know, with a work of recovery like this, you know, this is the first step in terms of assembling some of these voices. And I think the next step then is, you know, really narrowing down to particular themes and using these voices to think through and to work through, you know, new perspectives, new ideas uh, in international relations to take the kind of field forward. What that's going to look like, I have no idea, but I'm excited to see. That's good. We, we so rarely end on a positive, hopeful note. So let's end there. Uh, Sarah Dunstan and Katerina Rietzler, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, check out the book. Uh, it's really, really uh, important. And we're so glad you were able to join us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us.